Hello everyone, this is Rohit with the New York Organ Donation Awareness Corporation, and today we have Therese de Pasquale, interviewed by our executive director, Alexander Fraser. Her husband's lungs suffered greatly after contracting COVID-19, and he required a lung transplant. So let's listen to her share her story. So to start off, my husband and I have been together for over 12 years. We got married very young. I was 18 years old. We started having kids right away. We came from nothing and we built a really remarkable life together. We have four small children, 10 and under, and we were just living a wonderful life that we had worked so hard to get to. We had finally accomplished our goal and we were just enjoying ourselves. Then at the very end of 2021, my son, my third son, his preschool all caught COVID and he brought COVID home and all the kids got it, all four of them, and they had zero symptoms. I caught it and I got very sick the first week the most sick I had ever gotten, to be honest with you. By the second week, I was starting to feel better. And that's when my husband was the very last of the family to catch it. And his symptoms mimicked mine. His breathing was completely normal. He's 30, he's, you know, 33 years old. He's young, he's healthy. He was a perfectly young, healthy father and worked very hard and was fine. No lung problems. And so when he caught COVID and his symptoms mimicked mimicked mine, I thought nothing of it because I said, by next week, you'll be like me and you'll start to feel better. Like I said, his breathing was fine. Well, we went to bed at the end of that first week and in the morning he was gone and our room is upstairs and our, you know, main level with our living room is on the floor below. So I looked over and I thought, that's really strange that he's not there. And I walked downstairs and I found him dead on the couch, completely dead. I mean, his eyes were rolled back. He was not responding whatsoever. And it took me a solid It felt like an eternity, but I want to say like at least a full minute to realize that I had to call 911. I began screaming his name and I thought that, you know, he always wakes up when I scream. So, you know, that initial shock was just unbearable. But once I realized I had to run back upstairs because my cell phone was on my nightstand and I immediately called 911 and they came and they put the oxygen on him and he wasn't waking up. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, what is even happening here? Like I had no idea what was happening. And the ambulance shows up and they take him outside. He's still completely unresponsive. And that ambulance sat in my driveway for 25 minutes. You think ambulance, you think they're rushing off to the hospital. So I immediately thought he was dead. Long story short, they, I didn't find this out until well after he got home after 10 months, but what they were doing in that ambulance where they were intubating him. And I had no idea. So apparently he got a large clot in his leg or multiple clots rather. One traveled into his lung and that's what made him unresponsive. And because it was during COVID, the very first hospital that the ambulance brought him to, I was not able to go to. And he was there for a week and every day was getting worse and worse and worse. And they 
eventually said to me, you know, the ventilator is failing and he's not going to survive. Now, a friend of mine, a few months back, had a brother who was on ECMO. So by that experience, I was very well versed in ECMO. And I said to them, well, surely the next step is ECMO. And they said, well, we don't have ECMO here. So I went to the end of the earth to get him on ECMO. And for the sake of time, I will tell you that I had to involve many people, reached out to many physicians, many hospitals. And I swear the angels answered that day because a hospital 20 minutes away who had an ECMO program did not want to accept him at first. And their argument was that he was not sick enough. And here I'm saying he's maxed out on the ventilator. You're going to wait until he dies in the transfer to accept him. I was not willing to accept that whatsoever. So, you know, like I said, involving many people, making many phone calls, begging, pleading, I finally got them to accept him. And that very next day he was placed on ECMO once he got, so he was in that original hospital for a week. And when he got there, they, you know, assured me that the chance of him surviving once you go on ECMO is very low. And I already knew that, but I knew that he wasn't going to survive on the ventilator anyway. So if there was even a slight chance, I wanted it done. And I knew what we were getting into. But what I didn't know was the level of advocacy that was going to be needed on his behalf. So I'm sure you know this, but for people that don't, when you're placed on ECMO, you know, you're on sedation. And so he was in a medical coma for six months. So from the time that they brought him from my couch to six months, there was zero communication between him and I. And I had never been in an ICU before. I certainly had never been an advocate and I definitely don't have a medical degree. I'm no, I'm not a doctor. So I had to learn all of this very quickly. And when they placed him on ECMO, I knew instantly that I had two choices. I was going to crumble from this or I was going to rise up, get it together and save his life. And having four small children and being with this man that I love forever, what feels like forever since I'm 18, I chose the second route and I really got it together. I got a notebook. I started sitting in on rounds. I learned the difference between an attending, a fellow and a resident. I learned that staff like the back of my hand. I made friends with as many people as I could. And I utilized my visiting hours to eventually gaining 24 hours a day because that's how sick he was. He had everything and anything that can go wrong with a patient in an ICU happen to him, if not multiple times. They told me a million and one times that he was by far the sickest patient they had ever had in that hospital. And he, you know, my favorite part is that he coded for six minutes and that in itself you know, is a miracle. But on top of that, surviving, you know, coding, hemothoraxes, um, uh, you name it. I mean, heart failure, kidney failure, lung failure, every organ failure he could have. He was on dialysis. I mean, he had it all. But the one thing was I never gave up and I kept a positive mindset and I utilized my resources 
And I really, really fought for him. So just to speed up the story, the breaking point was the hospital that he was at on ECMO, they tried many times for me to do comfort care. His lungs were never going to recover. He was never, they didn't know if he had brain damage from the coding and all the problems he had had. He had foot, terrible foot drops. So their argument was, you know, to get a transplant, you have to be able to walk. To get a transplant, you have to be alert. They'll never accept him for COVID. Um, you know, every everything you can think of, they said to me. So I had call, I had known about NYU Langone from my neighbor who's a doctor, and I knew that they had a tremendous, amazing transplant program. And I had called them many times, but I never heard back. So the very last plea was when they said to me, this is truly it. We no longer can help your husband and we have to disconnect ECMO. I was so desperate in that moment to get a hold of NYU that there was one thing I hadn't done, and that was email and go there. So those were my next two. I said to that doctor, you will have to kill me before I sign that paper for comfort care. I will get him a transplant. If that's if that is truly our last resort, I, I will do it. And so that was my plan. I had found the entire transplant team at NYU's email from their website, Stephanie Chang, Dr. Luis Angel, and um, uh, Jake Natalini, uh, Daria Rudum, they're all part of the transplant. And I emailed all of them. And in, I made it very short, all separate emails. And in the header, I put in all capitals, please help. And in the body, I made it very short. My husband is 32. He's young, healthy, no underlying conditions. We have four small children. He's on ECMO and this hospital can no longer help them. Can you please help me? I kid you not, within five minutes, Dr. Luis Angel, the head of transplant with Dr. Stephanie Chang, called me on his personal cell phone and said, I get chills telling this every time. And he said, this is all we do. All we do is transplants from COVID. We have seen this a million and one times and we are going to help you. And I just remember the tears flooding down my face because I get emotional even just telling the story because I felt like the weight of the world was finally off my shoulders. I knew in that moment we were going to win. We, I was going to do this. Like I had made it this far. We had made it through every possible problem you could have in the ICU, including coding, which in my opinion is death. And from that moment on, I went, he gave me all the information and I went straight to the head of ECMO at the current hospital. And I said, here's their information. Please talk to them. They are going to take my husband and I need you to please cooperate. And he did. And it's interesting because at that time, I wasn't thinking transplant. What had happened in that particular moment was my husband had developed a bronchopleural fistula and the current hospital did not have a thoracic surgeon. Now, if you're in the medical field, you know that a thoracic surgeon is the only person that can help out with a bronchopleural fistula, which is essentially a large hole inside of your lung. 
So when they accepted him, my thought process was, we're going to just fix the hole and we're going to salvage his current lungs. They're going to fix it. We're going to get him off ECMO and that's what we're going to do. Transplant. I knew that they did transplant and I loved that that was an option, God forbid, last resort. But like I said, it was nothing that I had explored. It was nothing I knew about. I really had never even heard of a lung transplant. So that wasn't something I was giving any attention. I was, we are going there to fix the fistula and, and that's really what we're there to do. Um, but lo and behold, you know, we got him transferred. They they taught the current hospital how to wean his sedation because you have to be awake and alert for transplant for those that don't know. You also have to show that you can survive by walking and doing some kind of physical activity. So NYU essentially trained that hospital how to get him off sedation and how to start PT and OT to get him mobilizing again, because it had been six months. It had been so long. And once we got to that point, they did the transfer and we got him transferred. And the plan right away was to put a balloon in the hole. And if that didn't work, the next step was to do a VATS. Now, for those that don't know, a VATS is when they put a camera in to check out the lung and see what can be done to fix the fistula. So that's that was the plan. We got there. They put the balloon in for a couple days. It worked. And I was very optimistic about it. Everybody was, to be honest with you. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize, too, transplant is the last resort. Doctors and physicians will do everything in their power to salvage the lungs. And somebody once said to me, and it really resonated with me, it's not a cure. You're trading one thing for time. And that was really hard for me to live with because, you know, I want my husband to live forever. It's, it's a very difficult situation to come to terms with. But the one thing that I knew is that I didn't care what we had to do. I just wanted him to come home healthy and well with a quality of life. And that's exactly what ultimately transplanted for us. And I'll get to that. But so when the balloon failed, which it worked for a few days, but ultimately failed, they then went in to do the VATS. And that was a really hard day because I... The whole team and I were very optimistic that they would be able to do some kind of staple or cement or something once they got in with the fats. But that procedure was supposed to take about five to six hours. And an hour after he went down, Dr. Chang called me and she said, I am so sorry. But the second I got in there, it's in the top five worst lungs that I have ever seen. She said, the lung is completely dead. And that is the moment that I knew that we now had to explore transplant. And I was devastated. I mean, devastated. Like I was so upset and then it hit me. And this is when my whole life changed in multiple ways because I realized it's not what happens to you, it's what happens for you. And there had to be a reason that we couldn't salvage his original lungs. What would his life have even looked like? Would he have been on oxygen his whole life? Would he not 
survive that long, like there had to be a reason. And that's why I talk about this so much in my book. And it's actually the title in my Instagram. It's not what happens to you. It's what happens for you. And the other big thing I constantly talk about is mindset. I was going to turn this devastating news into something so incredibly positive that it would change not only my life, but many others. And I went all in. I was, I became a UNOS ambassador. I learned everything there was. I studied the medications. I learned the diet. I mean, I was like all in. This is going to be the best thing that ever happened to us. And can I tell you, it truly, truly has been the best thing that ever happened to us. And in so many ways, for one, the way that we appreciate life and look at little moments that we took for granted before, because we don't know how long we have, gift in itself. The memories that we're now creating that we never thought to do before, we're now doing. So in so many ways, it's impact, It's it made our life better. And that's why now I've devoted my entire life to this book, this brand, to help other people that are in the same predicament that it doesn't have to be bad news. It doesn't have to be devastating news. And, I, and furthermore, the importance of being an organ donor, you don't know. You can never say never. If somebody had said to me two years ago, your husband's going to need a transplant or organ donation is important, I would have said, what are you talking about? That'll never happen. Like I had the mindset, we're young, we're healthy. That'll never happen to us. But lo and behold, it does. The unthinkable does happen. And the last thing you want to do is be unprepared. And I think that that's why... I now have used this whole experience to turn it into something great. And that is ultimately how we landed with a double lung transplant. Wow. That, that's an incredibly powerful story. And I'm, I feel very honored uh, to be able to hear that. And, you know, you, you answered a lot of my questions just uh, in explaining the whole situation, but I would just ask in, in regards to those who are considering becoming an organ donor what would you say to specifically young adults that are considering becoming an organ donor, but are on the fence or, you know, just don't want to put the time and effort into opting into the system, given that that is the system we have in the United States? Absolutely. So first and foremost, what I will tell you is that a huge misconception about organ donation, especially in young people, is they think that the doctors will not save them. That is so false and so wrong. And I always like to touch on this because the doctors will do everything and anything to save your life and to treat the person before even going down a transplant route like our story. Um, what I will say is exactly the mindset I had. It, it, it'll never be me. It doesn't have anything to do with me. You never know when the unimaginable can happen. You can be in a car accident. You can be on a skiing trip. You can be in the middle of the, like, you know, you could be anywhere at any time in your life and need an organ transplant. It is not only for people with cystic fibrosis or, or, you know, a liver disease or anything like that. It can happen at any time. And the gift of life that you can give to somebody else 
is there are no words. It is the most powerful gift you could ever give. And, you know, that it's funny because that was one of the very first things I said to my husband, because we had never had a conversation about what to do in the event of, and when he eventually made it home, that was the first thing I said to him, if anything ever happens to me, you donate all of my organs because it really truly is a gift like no other. So if, a young person is considering it, please, please do it because you never know when it will impact you or your family. You may need one yourself and you don't want to wait until you're in that situation to make that decision. And um, I guess I would also, you know, curious how your life has changed once your husband has been back home and after successfully undergoing the transplantation process mentally, emotionally, what has been different, um, also tying into this huge campaign of advocacy advocacy you've embarked on, how is that all tied together and, you know, changed things since before this was the case? Yeah, so I think a lot of that has to do, again, with mindset. You can look at it in a negative, scary way, or you can look at it very positively. And for me, life after advocacy and transplant has been so rewarding and so fulfilling. I was a stay-at-home mom for 10 years before he got sick. And now I have earned my real estate license. I've written a book. I've created a brand on advocacy. I public speak. I have gone all in on being a UNOS ambassador for organ donation. Also with Live on New York, I participate with them. So, you know, I have really made the most of the experience. And I think all the things that I was, I was scared to do prior to this, prior to him getting ill, like I could never be a mom and, and do real estate or write a book or, you know, all the passions and dreams that I thought I could never accomplish, I've exceeded my expectations. And we truly make the most of every single day. And that's been the biggest blessing because with transplant, you know, rejection is always something that is a possibility and there is no way to tell when or if, or, you know, what that timeline will look like. And so instead of stressing about it, which I did in the beginning, I now just learn to appreciate every moment and I look at it. If anybody else in the in the transplant community is struggling with this, my best piece of advice that has helped me tremendously is instead of looking at it as rejection, I started looking at it as what if I was never had a transplant and was driving on the highway and got in a car crash tomorrow. It's the same thing. You cannot live that way. You just have to be grateful for your gift and live your life to the fullest and make the most out of every single day. And this applies to transplant or not. Wow. I mean, that that's very powerful. And I think like you did say that that way of looking at the world and our interactions and that gratitude is completely all encompassing for every facet of life. And I think that's a mindset that's really important to imbue um, to everyone, uh, re regardless of age and, and, and so forth um, in, in our modern time. And it seems like this is something you touch about in your book quite a bit. Where where could we go to to find that book? And you know how how long did it take to write that and, and the process behind that as well? 
Yeah. So the book is not out yet. It'll be out this summer, early fall. If you go to my website, TheresDePasquale.com, my first name, last name.com, you can put your name and email address in there to be registered for the pre-order link when that's available. The book was a labor of love. I walked around everywhere with a notebook and I, you know, involved some people to help me write it because I really wanted it to be a very good, informative read. Um, I will say beginning is the story, our, our tremendous story. The middle is how tips that anybody can use to advocate for their loved one. And then, of course, at the end, I raise awareness to the importance of organ donation and where they can go to do that and why it's important, et cetera. And of course, I always have to give a huge shout out to NYU Langone, which is my preferred hospital for not only transplant, but anything um, healthcare related, they are beyond phenomenal. And I also talk about that, you know, I didn't know the importance of doing your due diligence on the hospitals that your loved one is at. And I learned that later on. And now that's, I have to share that. So do your research. And if you're in the area, NYU Langone, by far the best. Yeah, no, we, we have a lot of uh, NYU pre-med students, part of our team. So that they would agree with me on that as well. Yes. But um, I just lastly wanted to say, you know, it's it's been an honor to hear about you and your family's story. And, you know, I'm so happy that you're, you're able to reunite your beautiful family. And it, you seem to have been doing an incredible advocacy work and your resilience um, and tenacity and, you know, willingness to, to, to put everything into your work and helping your family is really honorable. And we really want to amplify that. So I'll definitely reach out to you about um, all the, the work we, we put out regarding your story. And we are going to be having some webinars in May, um, if that's something you're interested in, to be with a, a panel of, of other uh, recipients and, and family members of recipients. Uh, if that's something you'd be interested in, uh, we would love Absolutely. to be in contact I would love it. Anytime okay. that I can get out there and talk and share and spread the word, I'm all for it. Perfect. That that's awesome. So we'll, we'll definitely reach out uh, regarding that. And I thank you so much for for DMing us on Instagram and sharing mm -hmm. your incredible story. I, I can't wait to to be able to put it out. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thank you so much, Therese. Have a great day. All right. You too. So that was Therese's story, and it really shows you how unexpected, life changing circumstances can arise. In some cases, the difference between life and death can come down to finding an organ donor. So it's very important to register as an organ donor because it can save lives. You can visit Therese's website, therezdepasquale.com, to support the pre-launch of her book. That's T-E-R-E-Z-D-E-P-A-S-Q-U-A-L-E.com. And make sure to stay tuned for the next episode to hear more about the impact of organ donation.